Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about first, do no harm. tried my best to calm down a little before recording this because, frankly, this has been a challenging few days in preparation for the show. I initially thought that this particular episode would be sort of straightforward. I don't find anything particularly controversial about the uh, practice of vaccination. I don't even think there's anything particularly interesting about standing up to and opposing the anti-vaccination movement, and that was essentially going to be the gist of the show. I, I wanted to take a look back at vaccination history, really, in a couple of unique ways, focusing on our different drummer. And I'll get there in a minute. But I think I want to expand the idea of first doing no harm to be a little bit broader and to talk about a couple of other things first as well, which is funny because I was going to spend most of this inappropriate conversations criticizing, perhaps even railing against a liberal anti-intellectualism. I realize that if I count up all of the 160-plus inappropriate conversations that have ever been recorded, especially where the focus is on the grave error of anti-intellectualism, almost always, a huge majority of those, are pointing to the right wing of the political spectrum. That is probably justified, because that is where the most pungent anti-intellectualism can be found. But today's episode was really going to focus primarily on the liberal side of the political spectrum, and the anti-intellectualism that comes from the Southern California hub of the anti-vaccination movement. But it's not that simple. Because two things have happened over the past three or four days that I've really found frustrating. I'm recording this on Palm Sunday, so I guess I'll start with Indiana being the, the latest state, they're not the first, to pass what I would describe as religious discrimination justification laws. Whatever they call them, I'm not even going to bother to, to do the, the Orwellian doublespeak that they do. Some sort of religious protection, religious freedom protection act. Basically, it's trying to make sure that if somebody engages in an act of bigotry toward a customer or an employee, that the non-discrimination rules that are in place in most states, and certainly nationally, cannot be employed against them. The idea is a growing number of Christians, usually right-wing Christians, suggesting that because they are Christian, they can justify whatever they may do under the auspices of having a sincerely held religious belief. This goes back to the mistake that the Supreme Court made with the Hobby Lobby case. And who knows if any good could come from this. Perhaps one of the things that might come positively from the situation in Indiana, uh, in addition to the initial you know, sort of groundswell of opposition to the to the law being signed, which is a positive. The other one might be that at some point the Supreme Court may have to look in the mirror and acknowledge that they've created some consequences that, frankly, the dissenting opinion predicted that a lot of naysayers said would never happen that are now clearly happening, either actually happening in states like Indiana or seemingly on the way to becoming something happening in states like Arkansas and Georgia. It's not a surprise that you see bills like this coming primarily out of the American South and what we might call the Bible Belt in the middle part of the country, because these are the same states that would have been strongly in favor of very similar rules allowing them to engage in racial discrimination. The meme that I saw that I think probably sums it up as well as any, because I happen to be recording on Palm Sunday, was from BettyBowers.com, and it basically has a picture of a statue of Jesus with his hand over his own face. And it says, since some Christians have embraced religious freedom as an excuse to be rude to people in Jesus' name, Palm Sunday is now to be known as Face Palm Sunday. Yeah, that puts a little humorous twist on what I really think is actually a very serious matter. I spent a big part of this morning watching news interview shows, or this morning and early afternoon, where uh, the Indiana governor, for example, was on ABC News, I believe it was, essentially refusing to answer questions. And previously, the Indianapolis newspapers had printed uh, stories that they had run where the uh, governor and others in press conferences kind of refusing to answer questions. 
Note that he signed this bill behind closed doors and actually was not willing to say who he was behind closed doors with. There seems to be a great deal of what I would describe embarrassment about the law. Because when you're on a nationwide question and answer news program, television news, mind you, but still, and somebody asks you, do you oppose discrimination? And do you think businesses should be prohibited from discriminating against gay and lesbian people? I just want a simple yes or no. Um, the answer needs to be either yes or no. And if that question has to be asked repeatedly and you never can get an answer, it's probably a clear sign that somebody's embarrassed about what they're doing. But I'd sum it up in a couple of ways. To me, the thing that inappropriate conversations can bring to this topic that I don't think you're going to get from the Supreme Court or even from most news shows, most programs hesitate to actually ask the question of somebody's sincerely held religious beliefs at the point of their actual religious belief. Now, from the left side of the political spectrum, the, the American atheist movement isn't interested in having that conversation. They feel like anything that gives credibility to somebody's religious beliefs is a big mistake. But I disagree. And I frankly point a finger at journalists, especially journalists on programs that are willing to weigh in with opinion. If you're an opinion show like everything Fox does, and certain programs on MSNBC and CNN... You ought to be willing and able to go toward the religion question. You ought to be able to have a theological discussion with somebody who claims that their worldview is driven by theology. You see, when you talk about having a sincerely held religious belief, you need to be able to explain what those beliefs are. How can it be sincerely held if you can't even begin to articulate it, and if you're shocked that anybody might ask you to articulate it? This was one of the big mistakes that I think the Supreme Court made. I know the court doesn't want to get into the business of weighing the credibility of one religion's claims versus another religion's claims, and I'm not suggesting that they should. But I think if somebody tells you that Jesus has told them they're against birth control, you kind of need to see the chapter and verse on it. And that chapter and verse kind of needs to come from the Gospels, doesn't it? It needs to be a red-letter answer, referring to the versions of the Bible where Jesus' quotations are in red ink versus black ink. So... There, there's a real problem there, but Inappropriate Conversations as a show is uniquely designed to ask these questions. And really, the main question is the one I, I would put out there. If Christians are to be the hands and feet of Christ, if we are supposed to be representing Christ to the world, then show me the situation where Jesus engaged in this kind of discrimination. The discrimination that we're trying to empower, to allow, to protect, show me a situation where Jesus did it. See, we have all kinds of stories in the Gospels about Jesus going to weddings and turning water into wine, or going to the house of a tax collector, I'll get back to that in just a minute, or dining with prostitutes, or, or standing up to protect people who are caught in adultery from the consequences of their actions, or even sending out women who are you know, engaging, engaging in what can only generously be described as serial monogamy, frankly, by Jesus' own moral code, engaging in multiple acts of overlapping adulteries and sending her out to share the gospel without so much as a sin no more. So I've got all kinds of examples of Jesus of Nazareth being somebody who would not hesitate to bake a cake for a gay couple who was going to have a party or a wedding. I just don't have any examples of him refusing to do so. I don't have any examples of him slamming the door in their proverbial faces the only time you can find Jesus speaking angry words, uh, denun denouncing people, calling them hypocrites, telling them they're bound for hell, he's speaking to the prevailing religious authorities of his day. He's speaking to the kind of people who in states like Kansas and Arizona and Georgia have tried to pass these kinds of laws. He's speaking to the people in Indiana who just did pass those kinds of laws. So I've got examples, Matthew 23 being an excellent example, of Jesus denouncing these kinds of people. I don't have any examples of him shutting the door and refusing to, quote-unquote, do business with sinners. When Jesus was walking the earth, at that point in time in Israel and Judea, there was no bigger perceived public sinner. There was no pariah that could rank with the tax collector, especially if that tax collector was engaging in um, questionably ethical behavior, if he was skimming off the top, if he cheated people, I'm referring to the kind of tax collector that probably could best be described as Zacchaeus, 
Zacchaeus is the one figure, Luke's gospel is where he appears, who clearly was cheating people because at the time that he was approached by Jesus, he promises that he will repay, in fact, repay a multiple of all the people he has cheated. So you're not going to find anybody. However, somebody who is extremely homophobic, probably bigoted, feels about gays and lesbians. You take that, you multiply it by about 150, and you get pretty close to how the people who were served in the part of the country that Zacchaeus was a tax collector felt about Zacchaeus. So you could make the argument that that Jesus would have every reason as a faithful, practicing Jew standing up for the the downtrodden and the people who were being taken advantage of, under the heel of the boot of a Roman Empire, with traitors in their mix like Zacchaeus, who were teaming up with the Roman Empire to actually collect those overburdened taxes, you might expect Jesus to stand up for the people, to refuse to even be seen with this Zacchaeus guy. But he doesn't do that. He approaches Zacchaeus, and he says to Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your place for dinner. It isn't just that Jesus doesn't refuse to be seen with him, refuse to to even entertain the idea of eating with him. Jesus invites himself over to his place, and who knows, perhaps helped him cook. Maybe, depending on what they were you know, had the habit of eating at the time, maybe Jesus helped him bake a cake when it was all said and done. Infer from that what you will. So the story of Zacchaeus tells us that as Christians, we've got an obligation here. In this political conflict and social conflict going on, as gay and lesbian people are beginning to get closer and closer to equal rights, and people who object to that are beginning to push back with both hands, in some cases, relatively dishonestly. Go ahead and ask an Indiana Republican who voted for this bill if they believe that it's going to have the impact of enabling businesses to very stealthily refuse to provide services to gays and lesbians, and you're not even going to get an answer. If the governor of the state is any indication, you're not going to get an honest answer. You may not get an answer at all. So who are we supposed to be as Christians? This is the theological question we must be asking ourselves. In the story of Zacchaeus, and this is some something of a callback. I've done an entire talk on this before. Inappropriate Conversations number 83, released in March of 2012, was called Being a Tree on World Storytelling Day. And the gist of it was, as Christians, who are we? I mean, we're supposed to be representing Christ to people, but we're not Jesus. So we can't be Jesus in the story of Zacchaeus. Maybe some of us are Zacchaeus. Maybe some of us have done some things that are seriously wrong, that call for a very public form of repentance. I'm going to get to some Christians, I think, that could be described this way in just a moment, when I begin talking about the world vision part of the show today. But most of us are not Zacchaeus. We're not the tax collector. We're not that bad. So our choice is... Are we going to be this angry person in the crowd, looking for vengeance, demanding our way, looking for a justification to refuse to do business with those kinds of people, longing for the day when, if you didn't like black people, you didn't have to be seen with them. You didn't have to let them in your store, and you sure didn't let them have to use your restroom. And applying that same sort of racist mentality now to other groups of people. It's not, maybe it's not just gay people. Maybe it's overweight people you can't stand to be seen around. Maybe it's the elderly that you find repulsive. Whatever it is. Are we going to be the mob? Or are we going to be the tree? And there's no doubt in my mind that the story of Zacchaeus tells us, first, that Jesus isn't shutting the door in the face of sinners as bad as tax collectors. So he's sure not going to shut the door in the face of people who are less sinful than that. And the other thing is that Jesus expects us to play a role. He expects us to help. He expects us to lift those people up above the crowd so that he can see them and he can work his miraculous relationship in their lives. So there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that if you could engage these kinds of religious right folks in a theological conversation, there's no justification for the thing they're trying to do, even if they were trying to do it publicly. The problem, the other problem I've got is that they're not trying to do it publicly. These interviews with Indiana officials make it clear that the people who supported the bill that they've just passed are not in a name-it-and-claim-it mood right now. And that's a shame. If you want to interpret the gospel as something like, maybe the gospel's a mark that all the Christian people, or even the people who aren't necessarily Christian, but who aren't, you know, 
who don't have an animosity toward Christianity. They're not a certain kind of Muslim. They're, they're not a certain kind of Jew. They're certainly not those atheists. But if you look at the gospel as a mark that you can put on your hand, and that mark tells you whether you're allowed to shop in my store or not because you're a good enough person. But if you don't have that mark, if you're one of those gays, if you're one of those atheists, then you're not welcome in my store. You know, maybe that is the gospel to you. But if you interpret it that way, then go there. Name it and claim it. Granted, if you read the book of Revelations, what I've just said sounds a lot less like the gospel, a lot more like the Roman Empire. But all the same, if you really think that is the gospel, let's have that conversation. Because maybe there's obvious biblical reasons why you're wrong. And if Jesus would reject that kind of a false gospel, then we need, as Christians, to have conversations with other Christians and bring them into repentance. Because they're very far away, in my opinion, they're very far away from what the gospel says. What's been clear is the shame that these otherwise proud Christian legislators feel about the prospect that their bill will do exactly what I've described. You see, it's a lose-lose situation for them. Because either they're right to be ashamed because they're taking the Lord's name in vain, they're betraying the gospel, they're teaching people to do exactly what Jesus would not do in these bake-a-cake-take-a-picture situations. Or, there's nothing wrong with their worldview. They are on the right side of what the scriptures teach. And then their refusal to speak directly and answer questions is just an example of being ashamed of Christ. If this is the gospel, if this is Jesus, and somebody puts a microphone in front of your face where you're probably talking to as many as 300 million Americans at the same time because you're on a national weekly news program and you refuse to answer the question, could it be you're ashamed of Christ? And make no mistake, evangelical Christians will know this. Maybe other people who listen to inappropriate conversations won't. But the Bible's kind of clear. If you're ashamed of Christ, Jesus says, I'm going to be ashamed of you at the moment of truth in front of God the Father and the holy angels. So I'm kind of upset right now. And people who say, well, Indiana's not the only state to do this. Why is everybody directing their, their vitriol at, at Indiana? Well, you know what? You always fight the battle where the troops show up. So maybe Indiana is the first place that this kind of boycott talk is happening. But when, when we're done, there'll be 19 other states to visit. Or maybe some of those other states, the same kind of law is less pungent because it has a clause or an amendment in it that specifically protects anybody from being on the receiving end of discrimination. Uh, Indiana is a unique situation in that their constitution specifically does not have any protections in place for gays and lesbians. And the logical inference is that this law is exploiting that loophole. But, you know, it is what it is. For now, the challenge is Indiana. Because a line needs to be drawn, and a statement needs to be made that this is where the conversation is going to take place. I think it should take place theologically. But if it needs to take place politically, that's fine. Either way, Indiana is getting a big snootful of the fact that it's likely to take place economically. And frankly, I applaud that. If the state that I live in passes a law like this, I guarantee I will not be doing business with anyone who doesn't answer the question first of whether they would do business with me if I were gay, I might even come up with a better example than that. Something a little bit pungent, a little bit offensive, just to make sure that I've weeded out those people who have no idea who their customer is and don't understand how business is conducted. See, I read a quote that I thought was really, really interesting today. Chief Justice Warren Berger, in a Supreme Court ruling several decades ago, said this, When the followers of a particular sect enter into commercial activity as a matter of choice, the limits they accept on their own conduct as a matter of conscience and faith are not to be superimposed on the statutory schemes which are binding on others in that activity. Meaning that once you decide you're going to open up a business as a Christian business owner, you do not get to put your Christianity on top of the responsibilities that you have as a business owner. There's a level playing field in the competitive marketplace in a capitalist system. So if we are going to be a capitalist economy, then people need to play by the same rules. And simply having a strong religious conviction that you shouldn't have to pay taxes does not exempt you from paying taxes, for example. It also doesn't give you the right to bully customers. And to me, this is the same thing as the anti-bullying exceptions that were proposed in states like Michigan and Tennessee, where states trying to get a hold of the deadly implications of bullying were stalled by the fact that Christians felt like 
it was really important that they be able to say hateful and potentially suicide-inducing things to people in the name of the gospel. First, do no harm. Can we understand the concept of how harmful it is to be telling somebody who has no idea when they walk into your place of business that they're different from everybody else, that after they've filled up their shopping cart and gone to the register because of what they look like or because of who they're who they're with, who they're holding hands with, for example, that they're not allowed to buy the products in your store. First, do no harm. That's a standard that Indiana's failing. And if people are right to say there's 20 other states, fine. It's a standard that 20 other states are failing too. Let's deal with it one state at a time. The other example of do no harm that really has me upset right now, uh, more than I can actually say, is I encountered a piece of information today that made me feel like a fool. I do not like feeling like a fool. But essentially, it's the world vision scenario. Now, a year ago, in fact, I wrote a blog post about this. Uh, In fact, I've written blog articles in the last year or two on both of these issues. One, when Arizona was dealing with their decision and came away with the right decision at the 11th hour. And this one, uh, January 1st of this year, looking back at 2014, I said the biggest story of 2014 was Christians who were willing to engage in human sacrifice. Christians who were willing to engage in child sacrifice. Because rather than allow a gay person or a gay couple working in the mail room of World Vision have the same medical benefits that all other married people working for World Vision have, they would rather see children starve to death. Now, I'm sure that people who are actively involved in Christian politics could find much softer ways of describing the situation. But I don't, I don't describe it softly. I describe it provocatively for a reason. Because I can't think of any reason why that, those same people who probably shop at Walmart and shop at Target should have any issue with World Vision. Because almost all the major corporate retailers in this country have those exact same types of policies in place. That whether the state that they do business in treats uh, gays and lesbians as a protected class, to one degree or another, most of these human resources departments do still treat those people as if they are in a protected class and you can't single them out for discrimination. So why was World Vision any different? Well, why is a different topic? I've come to believe that the answer really is truly bigotry. In fact, I had an argument on Twitter this week with somebody who objected to me using the term. I said, hey, for 12 months, I've avoided using the term. I'm only using it now because 12 months have gone by. And here's what I mean. When you do a year-over-year analysis of World Vision, my expectation was that World Vision put in a policy that was objectionable to a lot of Christians, and the right wing of the religious right lost their crap. They freaked completely out, went absolutely positively nuts, and as a result of them kind of demanding that people who felt the same way that they did, or people who were part of their flock, if you use that shepherd terminology, divest themselves of the organization. And what we were told at the time was that 2,000 children lost their sponsors overnight. In less than 24 hours, And that kind of impact scared World Vision so much that they convened an emergency board meeting. And you think these human resources decisions tend to boilerplate for a while. I mean, getting a a new HR policy in place takes weeks and months, not hours and days. And undoing it should at least take hours and days. This was minutes. They they got together. they, They backed away from the policy. They issued a press release. They put the people who had criticized them in a couple of cases on their board of directors, in one case to replace somebody who resigned over the backtracking and what he or she might have perceived as a betrayal. But what was the, what was the thought of it, right? So Christianity Today sort of outed this policy and ran front page news and, and stirred up the trouble. And Christianity Today, I don't know if it's front page or not, but they, they did put on their website the reversal, the retraction. It, it got a little bit of publicity from Christianity Today. And as somebody who, in many ways, kind of feels like the newspaper ombudsman role is something that we we need more than ever in the internet age, it should be extended more broadly than it is now, that you know, one of the ombudsman challenges is always that the unfair, inaccurate, and potentially defamatory news story is often page one, 
top of the page, or page three, first fold, banner headline, and the retraction is in small print on page two somewhere, or maybe even in the back of the paper, that the story that should restore things doesn't always get the same amount of play. But I know for a fact that the story that uh, World Vision had retracted their position got as much publicity, uh, at least it, it became known to the same people who had demanded sort of the boycott of World Vision. Um, it's, it's ironic to me that the same kind of religious right folks in Indiana who are upset over celebrities talking about boycotting the state think boycotting is such a terrible, evil thing to do when that's exactly what happened to World Vision, where the collateral that was being played with wasn't, um, you know, millions of dollars in tourism revenue. It was the lives and deaths of children. But most of us assumed, I think, myself included, this is why I feel so naive. That's why I'm so angry, both angry and hurt, right? Because I feel like I let myself down. Because my assumption was that the 2,000 people who had dumped their sponsorships of these kids would have come back, by and large, a week later. Because it was within one week of the news cycle that the news that they were going to treat gay employees equally and fairly, and then the news that they decided that they were going to go back to the way it was before, and they weren't that worried about treating gay employees equally and fairly, that happened so quickly that you might have thought that for some people who were deciding whether to drop their sponsorship, they just wouldn't have gotten around to it yet. I mean, we're busy, busy people. We live crazy lives. Laziness is what it is. It just takes a while to pull the trigger on some decisions, right? But I would have assumed that those people would have come back. But here's the staggering piece of information. Originally, it wasn't 2,000. It was 10,000. And it didn't stop at 10,000. It grew to 15,000. And at the end of the year-over-year analysis, this March, one year after the original events happened, it's getting worse, not better. I'm going to share some quotes from an article that was put online just this week, I think Friday, by Benjamin L. Corey. Uh, He has got a blog on pathios.com called Formerly Funding. And in it, he shares some of these figures, which I got to be honest, absolutely staggered me. I, I kind of thought that World Vision was probably back to whole again, because why wouldn't they be back to whole again? You demanded that a major international organization bend to your will, and they bend to your will. Don't you show back up? Don't you gloat about it? Don't you at least give yourself the opportunity to resist the temptation to say, I told you so? Here's the story, quoting Corey at first. For the past year, we've been throwing around the number of 10,000 children who lost sponsors. But a year later, we now know the full reality. World World Vision has made public some actual numbers. And when I break the numbers down, they're a little hard for me to wrap my head around. Here's the official statement provided by World Vision U.S. Quote, World Vision USA has a clear picture of the financial impact, which has resulted in roughly 15,000 canceled sponsorships, with possibly up to 4,000 additional cancellations that might be attributable to last year's events. Back to Corey. That's 15,000 for sure, and 4,000 likely lost for a total number of up to 19,000 kids who had their sponsorships pulled. Now he breaks it down even further and talks about the childhood to age of adulthood time span of kids, and if you assume that people who are sponsoring $35 a month do so during that 10-year on average span, it's basically $6.65 million in total losses. Now, I'm sitting here knowing that, for me, the year-over-year perspective is that my giving increased what I would describe as exponentially. You could put a zero on my entire lifetime giving to World Vision and add a zero to it, and that's what I did last year. Meaning that this notion of net losses is net losses overcoming people who actually showed up to fill in the breach. Now, I've said in that blog post published January 1st that I'm not going to reveal under any circumstances whatsoever what my continued role is with World Vision. Um, I'm not going to say whether I'm continuing to support them. I'm not going to say if and when I do how I do, because it is very possible that the same kinds of bigoted people who refuse to support the organization even after they backtracked on their policy might not want to have their name associated with somebody like me because I'm a radical moderate and I'm not in lockstep with the religious right on certain issues. I will not have my name on some list of supporters being used as an excuse for people to drop and pull their support. So a couple things I got to kind of get out of the way. Well, first, 
this Twitter argument with somebody who was upset with me because I was using the term bigot. My response to him, and it was an impatient response, I'll grant you, was that what other term am I supposed to use in situations like this? I'm calling these people bigots because one year later they're still not giving. Basically, he he said, he was calling me out for calling them bigots, and I said, listen, the term only entered my vocabulary relatively recently when they didn't come back one whole year later. I am staggered by this information that was shared this week by Benjamin Corey which basically said that even after World Vision caved, these people didn't restore their giving. I might be able to give you some sort of a pass on having political and religious differences with the leadership or or even having some sort of baseline homophobia that you haven't dealt with or overcome with yet. But when they restore their policy back to what it was before and you don't restore your giving back to what it was before, even if just to reward them for being incredibly responsive and frankly, in their statement, incredibly deferential about how important it was for them to have to share consistency with the greater family of God. They were apologetic for even thinking of changing the policy in the first place. So no, anybody who doesn't give at this stage is a problem. So what I'm talking about first doing no harm and whether or not we've got some people here who actually need to be rebuked, who actually need to be on the receiving end of some Matthew 23 type rhetoric in terms of having to answer for their hypocrisy. I'm going to you know, name the people who were responsible for all the loss of sponsorships in the first place, because the damage that was done to World Vision seems to be at least somewhat irrevocable. Many of the people like Franklin Graham and John Piper and the music group Casting Crowns did not do as good a job heralding the fact that things had returned to normal as they did screaming hysterically, I might add, about the fact that World Vision had made a change. If you think I'm wrong, I'm going to give you the official statement going back uh, from Franklin Graham to March 28, 2014. So again, highlighting the fact that all this stuff went down a year ago between maybe March 25th and March 28th. Here's what Franklin Graham had to say after the policy was reversed. Quote, World Vision has reversed their decision to employ individuals who are in same-sex marriages after an onslaught of negative reaction. In our country today, there's a tremendous pressure on Christians, churches, and Christian organizations to lower our moral standards. God is clear in his words, and his standards never change. I am thankful that Christians across the country urge World Vision to reverse their decision and prayed fervently that they would do so. Three cheers, signed Franklin Graham who has the audacity to associate his name as CEO Samaritan's Purse and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, it frankly offends me that Franklin has, again, the audacity to align himself with his father's name. Because I'll tell you what's missing from this statement. The same person who demanded that people who followed him divested themselves of world vision did not bother to demand that they reward the organization and continue the good work that that organization has done by restoring their support for the organization. First, do no harm. So I would suggest that maybe you shouldn't have done the harm of putting starving children in the path of death over what's essentially an American social and political issue, something that isn't even really that much a matter of intrigue in Europe and other places where World Vision does business. But to not put the same amount of effort into restoring the resources available to the organization to do its work. And for us to come along a year later and in a year-over-year analysis find out that they are exponentially worse than we thought they were to begin with. They've moved from what we thought might have been close to 2,000 to close to 20,000. Where do you put the blame for that? Well, I got people online who I think probably feel guilty about the terminology that I'm using and the accusation I raised suggesting that, well, maybe the, the blame all, all belongs to World Vision because, you know, they should have known better. They shouldn't have gone there in the first place. Well, you know what? Should have known better. Shouldn't have gone there in the first place. You're the crowd, the mob in the parade at the Zacchaeus story. You're not the tree. You're not Jesus. But maybe there's a few folks here who are more sinful than any gay and lesbian person I can think of, more sinful than Zacchaeus, the tax collector. 
the Franklin Grahams and John Pipers of the world and the entire Southern Baptist leadership has a lot to answer for. It was one thing for me to sort of accuse people of being Christians but engaging in human child sacrifice for what I thought was happening over a four or five day span last March, but it's been happening in an ongoing way ever since. I must believe as a Christian that the Holy Spirit is screaming for those folks to move in a different direction and to restore the course they were originally on and not listening and being in that sort of ongoing disobedience for the better part of a year now is a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It declares to a watching world that we cannot take seriously people who worry about their religious beliefs and rights being sincerely held at all, much less being worthy of being taken seriously because we're not even taking care of the widows and the orphans at this stage. When it comes to the question of doing no harm, the harm has been done. And as far as I can tell, the leaders in the religious right across the entire United States of America have done little to address the issue and stem the tide. And that makes them fully culpable for whatever happens. A wise man once defined crazy as doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Voted for a Democrat or Republican lately? Seen any difference? Feeling crazy yet? There is a cure for political insanity. You just need an injection of common sense. Watch out, though. It's a very big needle. Dan Carlin. Common Sense. I've spent a disproportionate amount of my time doing two of the three stories looking toward critically toward the right. But again, I think in this situation, I'm maybe a little bit more offended as a Christian because I don't see the Southern California liberal mom refusing to vaccinate her kids because she read a story that somebody put out there somewhere and her medical expertise coming from her WebMD degree doesn't contradict any of it. I don't see that being a theological argument. Instead, I'm going to take us in the direction of making the nationalistic argument. And to me, the gap here is kind of twofold. I don't necessarily need to walk through the science. That's not necessarily my strength, and it's been done, right? But trying to talk to this group of people, the anti-vaccination movement, about the science of medical vaccination is going to be about as fruitful as talking to somebody on the right wing of the, uh, the extreme you know, radical right in America about climate change. You can bring all the science you want to. They read an article a few years ago by a completely discredited person who's been disbarred and had his you know, academic degrees stripped from, and they don't care. You know? So no, I'm not going to talk the science. What I want to do instead is talk a couple things. A little bit of theology on this front, but again, this isn't a religious argument that these people are making. Where they're wrong is that they're disconnected completely from history. They don't remember what it was like for infants to be dying regularly of some of the diseases that they're actually directly refusing to get themselves or their children vaccinated and protected from and and with. But to me, I, I don't think that they understand just how on the wrong side of history they are. See, they're this small group of people who are endangering cancer patients, the elderly, very young infants who are too young yet to be vaccinated because of their selfish desire to, I don't know, obstinately prove they're right about something because they feel like they're on the cutting edge, the leading edge, or they they think perhaps, maybe perhaps correctly, that the United States of America has a population that's apathetic toward this. There's a common theme between the anti-vaccination movement and what you're seeing from religious freedom rights people, and that's this sort of American strain of rugged individualism. I'm going to guess that my European friends are going to be particularly confused by some of this. That clearly, if it's in the best interest of the public health and safety of people to get vaccinated, and if there's you know an infinitesimally small risk about it, you do it. You do it because the risk to the cancer patient is great, or the otherwise immune deficient patient is great. And the risk to your child is incredibly, incredibly small. But let's talk about that risk-reward concept for a second, because even if I can say, well, hey, I'm, I'm kind of a rugged individualist, I, I would prefer the government to leave me alone, and I'd prefer to not be facing any societal peer pressure or bullying over decisions about how I raise my kids or, or whatever, right? But in this case, I think people 
who are part of the um, anti-vaccination movement don't understand our national history is one of people who were willing to take not just the risks that these parents seem unwilling to take, they were willing to take incredibly higher risk, far more substantial risks because of the, the choice of embracing vaccines was viewed as a much greater choice, even with incredible risk than the choice of not embracing vaccines. And this takes us to our different drummer, Jonas Salk. As I usually do on inappropriate conversations for different drummers who are historical figures and not just personal citations, I'm going to go to Wikipedia first. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. Jonas Edward Salk was an American medical researcher and virologist. He discovered and developed the first successful inactivated polio vaccine. Born in New York City, he attended the New York University School of Medicine, later choosing to do medical research instead of becoming a practicing physician. Uh, the stories that I've read online suggest that he never really took that concept of being a practicing physician all that seriously. He really wanted to be a scientist, and becoming a medical doctor was a means to an end. In 1957, when the Salk vaccine was introduced, polio was considered one of the most frightening public health problems in the world. In the post-war United States, annual epidemics were increasingly devastating. The 1952 U.S. epidemic was the worst outbreak in the nation's history. Of nearly 58,000 cases reported that year, 3,145 people died, and 21,269 were left with mild to disabling paralysis, with most of its victims being children. The public reaction was to a plague, said historian Bill O'Neill. Quote, Citizens of urban areas were to be terrified every summer when this frightful visitor returned. According to a 2009 PBS documentary, quote, Apart from the atomic bomb, America's greatest fear was polio. As a result, scientists were in a frantic race to find a way to prevent or cure the disease. In 1938, U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt the world's most recognized victim of the disease, had founded the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, known as the March of Dimes Foundation. This March of Dimes concept is very important. It tells you how this was funded, and it gets us to an interesting decision that Salk made when he could have at least fought to patent the solution that he came up with as a vaccine for polio. Doing so would have delayed its implementation, created additional cost, perhaps even walled off the poorest of the poor from being able to get and use the vaccine. And Salk made a very willful and intentional decision not to pursue the patent process, not to try to recoup the medical funding. So two things I want to kind of cite for, for him. One, very interesting from a financial perspective. If you believe the kind of the approach of the Hollywood film The Fugitive, the movie made with uh, Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones based on the 1960s and early 70s TV series. I think if Salk were a character in that story coming up with this kind of vaccine and refusing to go through the process of giving a recoup to the investment that was given to him, making a, pharmace a pharmaceutical company incredibly rich, he probably would have died in a mysterious car accident on the way home one night. I'm not suggesting that that's actually true, but certainly within the fiction of the movie The Fugitive, it's absolutely true. I could name Salk as a different drummer for the decision not to profit off of his vaccine. That would be enough in and of itself. Because although there's some discussion, and I, I put out on the uh, Inappropriate Conversations Facebook page, which granted lately has been occupied with the more theological concerns related to the news coming from World Vision and the news coming from the state of Indiana. But if you scroll back a ways, there's a Salon.com article that, that does take a really good look at the history of the decision not to pursue a patent. And it comes in two ways. Part of it is that maybe the lawyers were not going to be in a position to do so because Salk was building on the foundation of previous developments. It wasn't purely his idea to come up with a dead cell vaccine for the virus. On the other hand, uh, Salk's attitude was not necessarily based on what the lawyers were telling him. His attitude was that the March of Dimes had raised millions upon millions of dollars to find this cure, that he was in many ways one of the key direct recipients of that funding. And it didn't make much sense for him to assume the role of being a profiteer 
a pharmaceutical mogul, if you will, when most of the funding came to him from school children who were giving up lunch that day and giving the 10 or 20 cents it would have cost them to the cause of finding a cure for polio, or in this case, a vaccine. So Salk made a very interesting decision to bypass the financial rewards of the work that he had done, which I think was really impactful. The other thing, though, was the scope of the testing that was becoming available. In direct opposition to other scientists who were also pursuing cures or vaccines, Salk was very aggressive, less plodding, I think maybe the way to word it, in terms of his approach. And as a result, he ended up going through a volunteer process to test. Let me just go back to the Wikipedia article and sort of read it, because it's fascinating. The field trial set up to test the Salk vaccine was, according to historian O'Neill, the most elaborate program of its kind in history, involving 20,000 physicians and public health officers, 64,000 school personnel, and 220,000 volunteers, end quote. Over 1.8 million school children took part in the trial. Let me say that again. Over 1.8 million school children took part in the trial. You essentially have a test on an inconceivably large scale. Look at the population of the United States at that time. I don't have the numbers in front of me. My guess is less than 200 million. And the population of the United States at that time, in the mid-1950s, was willing to take 2 million of their children, which had to be a fairly significant pop, you know, percentage of the school-age population at the time. And 1.8 million of them took an untested, or at least not sufficiently tested, maybe be the way we would word this. This was a field trial of the vaccine. And people were so desperate to attempt to vaccinate themselves against polio that they were willing to deal with things much more serious than autism. They're willing to take the risk of death, the risk of permanent paralysis, certainly the risk of catching polio, on the hope that not only would Salk's vaccine work, but their, their child, being part of the first 1.8 million to try it, would be among the first to be immunized by it. The story here is that as a country, historically, our commitment to vaccination is so high that it is tempting to refer to this relatively small but seemingly growing anti-vaccination movement in corners of the United States as anti-American or un-American or insufficiently American or at least out of touch with who we are as a nation. You gotta come with risks that are far more documented and far more serious than the risks taken by two million school kids in the middle of the 1950s desperately trying to prove that a vaccine would work. The results go without saying. This isn't a history lesson. Anybody who takes a look will find that this disease that was hitting, call it 50,000 kids a year on average, has gone to the point where we now refer to it almost in the past tense. It is not an ongoing concern due to not just Salk's initial approach, but later developments and improvements in the process of vaccinating. We went from his vaccine to improvements in the vaccine to better versions of the vaccine, to other vaccination options. But essentially, through this leadership, both through the financing of the March of Dimes, bypassing what can sometimes be a process that creates delays in delivering medication to people, certainly increases the costs in delivering medications to people, and creates a profit, a profit motive and a profit cluster for people who aren't necessarily engaged in what I would describe as the direct delivery of medical services. He worked around all that stuff because the nation itself was desperate. Now, here we come along several decades later, so many years later that most of the people who are leading this anti-vaccination charge are young enough that they have no recollection of anybody, certainly not anybody in their generation, getting polio. So when you compare the desperation to try vaccines in this situation that I'm describing from Salk's era, with this sort of paranoid, unsubstantiated fear of vaccines that's happening now, the common denominator is this question of first doing no harm. Now, before I leave the different drummer segment, let me just say that Salk's no angel here. There's a couple of situations that probably need to be called out whenever we're talking about the results of his work. He was aggressive. 
And in some cases, this meant that some of the early experiments he was doing in the broader area of virology included giving medical tests to people who were perhaps mentally disabled or in another, in a, by our modern standards, unable to consent. Either they were part of a um, mental hospital program or they were not fully conscious or they were so desperate based on the situation with their disease that consent was really not, not really possible in the full legal sense of the word. And I think that, ironically, him doing this not long after some of the revelations were coming out of Nazi Germany about experiments being done on live humans in some of the tests that were coming out of the Nazi camp, it's a little bit unsettling. Now, part of that is just the standards that we have today versus the standards we had in the 1950s. But there are a few eyebrow-raising moments in the biographical material. The other one I don't think I put to the fault of Salk per se, but because he was dealing with a dead virus vaccine, if one particular mass production company didn't actually follow procedures properly or didn't get what they needed when they needed it, and they ended up with a live vaccine instead, some of the rivals for Salk in terms of trying to develop the best virus and to do it as quickly as possible but as safely as possible uh, were actively critical of the fact that there were a handful of deaths coming from one particular manufacturer delivering a version of the vaccine that didn't have as a dead enough dead virus uh, solution in it. So there were actual real consequences. People who caught polio because one particular manufacturing center made a mistake. Is it Salk's fault? The rush to deliver the vaccine to as many people as possible. Yeah, maybe there was an opportunity to standardize the procedures a little bit better, to have a little bit of a of a more robust quality control process. There's stuff there that you could point in lots of different directions, but the reality is five people died in a single batch coming from a single manufacturing center, one of many manufacturing centers, because the country was so desperate to have this polio vaccine available everywhere that there was a rush to mass produce. So a couple of situations I can point to where I could say, yeah, this didn't really work. So a guy who's being hailed on the one hand as a miracle worker, on the other hand, yeah, there were a couple of situations where his decision not to patent it might have been questionable questionable by some in some corners. Uh, Again, one particular uh, site manufacturing the vaccine made some mistakes and there were some direct consequences. But as a nation, we didn't look at those consequences of a few deaths and a few cases of contracting polio as a sign that vaccines themselves are a bad idea and let's walk away from it. That it's, quote-unquote, not natural. I dare say that there's a lot of us here today who are only here today, at least in the United States, because our parents were able to survive childhood because of the impact of the Salk vaccine on polio alone. Between when the height of the disease hit 58,000 kids in one, one summer... And when Salk ultimately was able to get the vaccine in the hands of everybody who needed it, that gap probably had a couple hundred thousand potential cases of exposure. There was a window there where any delay was going to increase the number of people who actually caught polio and was dealing with the consequences of polio. He was perhaps in a, in a rush, but yeah, maybe that rush was justified. And when you look at his rush to deliver medication to as many people as possible to prevent a horrific disease that, granted, 58,000 people, three or 4,000 deaths, um, maybe not as scary as the atomic bomb, but his rush was well-founded because lives were at stake. And if he did a couple things along the way, which by our modern standards in medicine would fail the standard of first do no harm, I think you've got to remember that if you compare Salk's attitude from a do-no-harm perspective, to the anti-vaccination, quote-unquote, movement's perspective. There's no doubt which one is doing the greater harm. And in this case, which one is more reckless in putting people at risk? Hello, Dave Prowse here. And when I'm not performing my one-man show, The True Voice of the Dark Side, I listen to Here Goes Nothing on the Simply Syndicated Network. Right, back to rehearsals. Commander, tear this ship apart until you find those plans and bring me all passengers. I want them alive! I've hit three stories today with a little bit of anger and perhaps a a faster-than-normal pace. 
And I've done so from the perspective of this notion of, of our responsibility to first and foremost protect and care for those around us. I'm a big believer in the notion of harm reduction. I believe that in the case of people who are have developed a dependency or an addiction to even very dangerous drugs, the first obligation is to make sure that they are alive long enough to be able to contribute significantly to whatever treatment ultimately becomes available for them so that they can live to tell the story. Living to tell the story starts with keeping you alive long enough. First, do no harm. Sometimes, giving people a medical version of the drug they're, they're dependent upon is the least harmful thing you can do. Sometimes, injecting a dead version of a very frightening and terrifying disease to vaccinate somebody against catching the full-blown version of that disease is the least harmful thing you can do. As a Christian, I will tell you that the example set by Jesus Christ of spending time with people that the Pharisees and Sadducees were convinced were unrepentant sinners, and there was no hope for them, and they were riffraff and trash, and they were the unsaved. Jesus gave us a much different example than saying, I shouldn't have to do business with those people. Jesus gave us an open-door example. His attitude was, I'm going to interact with you, and by you having the ability to meet me face-to-face, and me having the ability to see your situation and empathize even more fully, more directly with your situation. Good will come from it. Inherent good will come from it. The risk of vaccinating a child who perhaps wouldn't be exposed to the disease anyway is much lower than the risk of having an outbreak of measles hit Southern California and perhaps cost the life of somebody who's got an immune deficiency. Or, as shared on Greetings from Nowhere, a podcast a few weeks ago, somebody deciding that if they didn't need to vaccinate their kids anymore, they probably shouldn't vaccinate their dogs either, causing a rabies outbreak in Southern California that led to, you know, dozens of dogs having to be put down for being exposed to a disease that, again, we feel like we've got a grip on. We've got our finger on top of this. We're in control of the situation. Well, we're only in control of the situation if Christians behave like Christ. We're only in control of the situation if people continue to take the medications that an entire nation raised millions of dollars one dime at a time to try to solve and all the other vaccines for all the other deadly childhood illnesses to go with it. So I guess my answer on this question of first do no harm is to look at this anti-vaccination craze and say, how dare you? How dare you suggest that you've got wisdom that exceeds our different drummer this week, Jonas Salk, and dozens and dozens of other scientists besides them, because you read an article once online. How dare you? And how dare you, a so-called Christian in a red state or in the Bible Belt, presume that Jesus would be in any way all right with you slamming the door in people's faces and hanging a no-gaze-allowed sign in your storefront? Just what Jesus did with Zacchaeus is the example we're supposed to follow. And anybody who says different is a blasphemer. How dare you? And finally, how dare you? Franklin Graham, John Piper, the members of the band Casting Crowns, the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention, the American Family Association, Focus on the Family, all of these other groups. When you demanded that World Vision change something to suit your political whims, and you were going to run the risk of children starving to death because you were going to remove your sponsorship and support for the organization until they made those changes, then by God, when they made those changes, you should have come back. And if you didn't come back, then calling you a bigot is the best thing I can say for you. You are worse than a bigot. You are anathema. You are an apostate. You are a blasphemer. And you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Jesus in Matthew 23 would call you a liar, would call you a hypocrite. And I challenge anybody who would accuse me of judging, not lest I be judged, to remember that every now and then within the body of Christ, when someone goes that far afield, it makes sense to turn around and rebuke them and say, get behind me, Satan. How dare you remove the support that you were so willing to offer for all those many years over what? Somebody doing what you wanted them to do after all? I've got a problem with it. I've got a bigger problem with it than I've got the ability to articulate. And I'm going to wrestle with it for quite some time. And the reason I am is because our standard, whether about medicine, 
or about evangelism ought to be as simple as this. First, do no harm. Thanks for listening.